Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mr. Rodolfo Maximiliano Sarzo Laviele Grande Ruiz Perez Chaumont. Oh, you don't recognize that name? Well, maybe you will recognize my guest playing the bass guitar on this little ditty. Yes, that was Quiet Riot's Come On, Feel the Noise. And my guest today is the legendary hard rock heavy metal bassist, Mr. Rudy Sarzo. Rudy has played with everyone who is anyone, but is perhaps best known for his work with Quiet Riot, Ozzy Osbourne, Whitesnake, Ronnie James Dio, and Canada's very own The Guess Who. And by the way, this is the 40th anniversary of Quiet Riot's Billboard number one album, Metal Health, so I suggest you all get ready to bang your head. Welcome, Rudy, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? I'm here. <laughs> and it's now. I'm here right now. And you are a West Coast guy, Rudy? I'm a West Coast, yes. I live in Los Angeles. By the way, you just gave away to millions, millions of people my email address. Yeah, you did. When you say my name, my whole name, that's my email address, Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is a long name, and we're going to get to all this great stuff because you got a great story. I want to just note that uh, at the sprightly age of 72, you're still slapping the bass. You have relatively recently rejoined Quiet Riot. Rudy, I'm 53. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. How do you feel the morning after a show these days? Uh, you know, that's a really good question because it's it's not a really fair assessment, uh, you know, taking age aside. It's a matter that back in the day, we used to be in a bus. Right after the show, you take a shower, you get into your bunk, and you rest, and you wake up the next day in, in the next city. Nowadays, it's like I do a show, and we want to, you know, because of travel being so... Uh, <laughs> trying to find the politically correct word. Difficult. Challenging. It's challenging. Travel reinvented, <laughs> reimagine, reimagine traveling, you know, get, getting on a plane. So, you know, we know there's, there's going to be probably some issues and we want to get home. So we take the first flight out the next morning, which means that we, we might have a four or five hour. Oh, that would be, that would be lovely to have five hours of sleep, but it's usually four because, you know, there's like a four o'clock uh, lobby call. So, you know, we're, we're tired, not just from the show, but we're not getting any rest. And then if you have to play that next day, it's the same thing. You're going on stage with a four-hour sleep. So it's 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 all different. It's challenges. <laughs> yeah. Well, G Gene Simmons of KISS is a year older than you yeah. at 73. Do you uh, interact with him? Do you share any tips on keeping fit and having fun while on tour? No. No, no. We talk about it. You know, when, when, you're, when you're in the presence of Gene, you just let him talk. So we really don't. Uh, yeah, it's not a conversation. It's more like, what can I learn from Gene Simmons? You know, because I I, I really admire him. But yeah, I admire the whole, you know, the whole vision of Kiss. You know, is that they invented something and they kept it pure. You know, 
the vision of it, of what it's supposed to be. And, and it's it's amazing. And, and they survive, you know, they started in the 70s and they survive all these uh, decades of mus- music yeah. changing because music changed every single decade, you know. And uh, Gene knows how to make money, that's for sure. Yeah, but, but I think it's much more than that. I mean, you know, money, I think it's, it's, it's the, uh, the, the byproduct of what the vision is all about. I don't think that they ever imagined that what they had in mind was going to be so financially successful. I think it was just something that they really, really wanted to do from the heart. Well, we want to get what's in your heart. I want to, with your permission, go all the way back, get the Rudy Sarzo story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing a bit. Uh, I was born in Havana, Cuba in uh, November 18th, 1950. And basically, you know, it was a pretty normal upbringing until the revolution. And then uh, we were, my family was uprooted from Cuba and uh, we came legally to the United States. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't even leave, leave, let you get out of Cuba unless you had all the proper documentation back in 1961. And uh, so we had to wait for about a year, year and a half to get all the documentation, you know, even somebody to claim us a sponsor from the United States, somebody, uh, a family member, and uh, all of that, visas, passports, and we had to do it undercover because my, my there was a a, uh, a law that the revolution passed that if you were a technician, somebody who had training in, in their craft, whatever they did, my father ran printing bobbins, the machines, you know, back in, Back in the 50s, and you know, there was these, these big bobbins that they just roll, and newspapers and magazines came out of, you know, which is a little bit different than uh, than the, the way printing is done nowadays. So, it's, but my my dad knew that craft, which meant that if he left, they they, they had, you know, it was hard to find somebody who could really replace him, you know. So we had to. And nobody in the family knew about anything that we were doing, and then one day. We took a vehicle and uh, they took us to the airport and we left. And we, we thought we were just going to be gone for a few months, that the whole thing was going to be resolved quickly. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, Kennedy was always an adversary of, of Russia, you know. And then once the uh, you, we left between Bay of Pigs, we were in Cuba when Bay of Pigs happened, and we left right before around the time that before the missile crisis so I experienced both one in Cuba and another one in Miami. You know, seeing the troops go down Flagler <laughs> all the way to yeah. you know to Key West and you know and all the bases that were in uh, southern southern Florida at the time. Rudy, it must have been such a culture shock for you to make that transition as a, as a ten year old. Uh, were you even speaking English at the no, time? No, no, I mean not proper enough English. But but I learned sign language. I mean my own sign language. I. Which, which I still do a lot. I speak with my hands, you know. Even when, yeah. when I'm not playing, I speak with my hands. <laughs> You've actually described the uh, Brian De Palma version of Scarface with Al Pacino as a home movie for you. Talk about Miami in those yeah. days. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read anywhere that I said that because I, I do call it, it's a home movie for, for Cubans. As a matter of fact, it's it's too close to home. <laughs> so it's not a very popular movie in Miami. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah. uh, De Palma and Oliver Stone, who wrote the screenplay, they got kicked out of Miami uh, once they found out what they were actually up to. <laughs> you know, what kind of wow. movie this is going to be. You know? So they had to finish it off in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. 
Well, uh, you made your way, Rudy, to Los Angeles in 1977. And if I may first set the stage for our listeners, Quiet Riot was founded in L.A. in 1973 by guitarist Randy Rhodes. And although there were many lineup changes, their most commercially successful lineup consisted of the late Kevin DeBrow, guitarist Carlo Cavazzo, the late drummer Frankie Benali, and you, Rudy Sarzo, on bass. Now, ahead of the 1983 release, Metal Health, which featured Come On, Feel The Noise, and knocked off the police's synchronicity atop the Billboard album chart. Rudy, the story goes that upon arriving in Los Angeles in 1977, you got turned away from a sold-out Van Halen show at Whiskey A Go-Go, and you went around the corner and checked out a show by a band called Quiet Riot. Yeah, I was just looking for, you know, I just got into sound, so I was looking through to network, meet deep, you know, meet all the musicians and let them know that I'm around, and, you know, just... We didn't have Facebook back then, and so you had to you yeah. had to be there, you know, in order to be to be heard or seen. So I couldn't get in that club. I said, "Well, I got to find another place to go." And somebody said, "Hey, there's a club down the street called the Starwood." I had no idea who was playing. You know, it just didn't matter. It was just a matter of going in and be around other musicians. The first band was on Bad Axe and Dana Strum from from Slaughter, who plays an integral part in Randy getting the Aussie gig, but that's a whole different story. So he was there and they were playing. And then the next band, that was Quiet Riot. And I got to see the whole presentation, how they started the uh, the set. You know, they had some like little, you know, home, homemade production. And, but they had a vision. Again, you have to have a vision. You gotta be different from, from the next, you know, band to get recognized. And uh, I, by then, by 77, I had been traveling all over the country. Actually, with Frankie Benelli, we, we had many, you know, we started playing in Florida right after I met him on my birthday, November 18th, 1972. And we started playing pretty much right after that. We left Florida. We started touring, you know, the Chicago circuit, Midwest, and wind up in LA together. We were living together. And, uh, so my mind, I have to take it back to that, to watching, the, being in front, of, front, yeah. in front of the band watching it. So, you know, they come on and I go, wow, these guys didn't really have it together. And like I mentioned before, I've seen a lot of club bands that were, you know, preparing to move to LA in the Midwest to get a record deal. And these guys were way better, better. I mean, they, they really had it together, especially, you know, when it came to on the guitar department, they had Randy Rhodes. And so I was really impressed. And like I usually do, I mean, I do this all the time. When I see a band that it's going in the right direction, I, I acknowledge it. I say, hey, I mean, and this is even before I was successful. This is like me, you know, it, it's, it's my nature to do that. And uh, so, uh, so I, I, after the show, a Quiet Riot show, I saw Kevin running around the, uh, the club and I went up to him, introduced myself and I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I've been touring the, the, the States and seen a lot of club bands and you guys have something very unique going on here. Just keep doing what you're doing and you're going to, you know, you, you guys are going to make it. And when I say make it, there's different levels of making it. There's the KISS level of making it and then there's like, you know, the band that just goes out there and has a record out and makes a living and they're happy because they're making music. That's making it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, so, so about a year later, and that was the last time, you know, first and last time that I saw Kevin before I got a phone call for, from him about a year later. 
And I happened to be in New Jersey and I was getting ready to to go back to Los Angeles because every, uh, I I went to LA three times before I stayed there for good. Um, 76, 77, and then in 78, I came back. And every time I would leave was just to make money, you know, so I could go back and g- give it another shot. And that last time in 78, I I was getting ready to come back to LA and I get a phone call from Kevin and say, hey, uh, we're looking for a bass player and everybody tells me that you're the guy and he remembered me by my accent and uh, Cuban accent. And uh, so so I said, yeah, I'm going to be in L.A. next week. Okay, great. Well, give me a call when you get here and I will audition you. And that was it. I got, you know, I got the gig. Here we are. Rudy, I have to ask you, internet true or internet false? Before your audition, future Motley Crue founder Nikki Six auditioned to be the bassist, but apparently didn't know the names of the notes, couldn't play the instrument, and... They said he was not a good fit and asked you to join. Well, it's not just me. I mean, they, they auditioned everybody in town. They were looking for a specific player because that's what I was told. I said, yeah, we're looking for somebody who can play with their fingers. And we hear that you play with your fingers. Now, I it wasn't until recently that I actually started to like uh, use a pick uh, for certain recordings, you know, just for, for tone. But I favor playing play with my fingers. And it's just about every player in town that Choir Riot auditioned, they all play, play with a pick. And that's not what they were looking for. They were looking more for Greg Ridley, who was the bass player in Humble Pie, Kevin's favorite band, that style. And also, you know, John Deacon, who also was known for playing with his fingers a lot and stuff like that. And so that was, you know, basically... I, I was in the ballpark that they were looking for. And then the fact that I have been playing for about, by 78, uh, about 10 years in clubs, you know, all, all, all over the country, you know, that gave me a little bit of an edge to somebody who I think Nikki was 16 years old at the time. And I just, he had just picked up the instrument. Joining Quiet Riot for you, you became very close friends with your bandmate, the late, great Randy Rhodes. And in fact, you were teaching bass guitar, I understand, at the music school owned by his mother. Yeah, they were looking for a bass teacher. And Randy said, hey, you want to come over and teach? And I said, yeah. I had never taught before. So, I mean, I have been to school and, you know, and, and seen teachers trying to teach me. And, and you know, once you, once you become a teacher and you have to follow the textbook, academia, it's a little bit challenging. Because, like, let's say in my case, I was already playing in clubs when I started, you know, learning music, you know, going to school, college, and taking uh, sight reading and theory. And it it went just a little too slow for me. I was already doing that, (laughs) you know, at night and getting paid for it, you know. So, so what, you know, so for me, teaching was like, hmm, I, I had a bad experience from learning, from following academia. And so Randy taught me how to teach, especially in in his mom's school, Musonia, which is still active, still exists in North Hollywood, California. And uh, he says, listen, just let's say if they come to you, the student, and he says, I, I want to learn, learn the certain bass part of this song that I hear on the radio, you learn the song, you teach it to them how to play it, but then you teach them the theory behind it. Why makes this? Why does this riff work in the song? 
So it says that way they're getting some uh, some theory. They're learning how to how to, music. They're learning music, not just how to play notes. And then they'll be happy that they were able to play the song that they want to play that they hear on the radio. In your career, at some point, Randy Rhodes became disillusioned with Quiet Riot's inability to land an American recording contract. He left to accept an offer to form a new band with Ozzy Osbourne. You subsequently ended up with Ozzy Osbourne. I want to just kind of get you to talk about the difference between this bridge between Randy Rhodes' Quiet Riot and Metal Health Quiet Riot. And I understand the transition, I guess, came when you left Ozzy to rejoin Quiet Riot. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so the, <laughs> That is a lot. Yeah, so let me, let me give you my, my perception of things. Uh, which actually through the years they have revealed themselves because, you know, I, I, I wrote a book and in order for me to write the book, I had to go back, relive it in my head, you know, and figure it and put it and put it out on paper, you know, make certain confessions. And then I, I have read my, my own book many times because when you read, you have to, or when you write, you have to read what you wrote to make sure that, you know, that everything, that the grammar is correct. You know, and then you send that up to an editor, and then they go through it again. You know, you know the whole thing about my experience with with Randy, and I have to begin there because without that, there is for me personally, there's no foundation. So my foundation of whatever I do or choir writer means to me is based on having played with Randy, not just in choir writer, but also with Ozzy. But when I first joined choir writer in 1978, it was basically we never talked about politics. We never talked about religion. Girls never got in the way. It was all about music. It was the first time that I joined a band that everybody had a collective vision that we're here not only to make music, but to get a record deal. That's it. An American record deal. The band already had two records out in Japan. But back in the 70s, having a record in Japan is like having a record in Estonia right now. You know, what does, yeah. what does it mean? You, you, you can't buy it in the United States, and, and this is where you're playing. You know? so, so, but they figure, you know, management could not get a, um, an American deal anywhere else. So they figure, what about a Japan, get a Japanese deal, and then we're going to use these recordings for the Japan records uh, either to get a distribution deal or to show them as demos that this, you know, and not have to pay for the demo. Yeah, the regular companies in Japan is going to pay for it. You know, so it was more like a business decision than anything else. But what I learned from Randy, see, Randy was the, the only musician I've ever played with so far that was born into a musical family, meaning that his mom and dad were music professors. They, they uh, The family had a, a, a music school slash music store uh, his mom was a, a prodigy trumpet player in uh, in a marching band in uh, UCLA. So Randy, he could, you know, he knew theory, he sight reading, playing classical guitar, but even before he joined a rock band. The reason why he joined a rock band was because he wanted to, you know, network, hang out with other kids. So that became like the... Uh, his favorite vehicle to do that, you know, to, to socialize. But Randy was a consummate musician. That's all he knew, music, music, and, and music with integrity, not music with, uh, you know, 
doing whatever it takes to do something. No, it has to. You have to keep the integrity of of what you're playing and how to how do you present yourself, you know. And that that was the first level of Randy that I learned. And that's what I was playing with Quiet Riot. By the time that I joined Ozzy, he had taken the whole thing to a whole new level. I mean, there he is. You know, he wins in 1981. We were on tour. We were just uh, play. Uh, we were about to play at the Cow Palace, which is the first day of the Diary of a Madman tour. That's December 30, 1981, Cow Palace in San Francisco. And he gets the Guitar Player Magazine uh, Best New Talent Award. You know, again, this is over 40 years ago. There was no social media. Nowadays, you know, if you put a viral video on the internet, you become instantly famous. Back at 41, over 41 years ago, you had to do it show by show. You had the people had to come out, see you play, and then you have to impress them enough that they come back to see you and tell their friends about it. And so that's how you build your, your reputation. There was barely any airplay i mean the only song that really got any airplay was uh, a crazy train and that doesn't even touch his musical death you know but when randy got that award immediately he realized that people were listening and he felt uh, not an obligation but more of a trying to find the right word people were listening and he needed to take his knowledge to the next level and he needed to really go beyond what he was doing because now now there was now he, he had an audience that he could that he knew existed that had voted for him as the best new artist you know so now he starts taking lessons on the road we will go to breakfast you know, we just check in from the, uh, you know, the, the the tour bus. We get off the tour bus, check in into the hotel, go to breakfast. He'll get a yellow, yellow pages. He would like look for the biggest ad for a music store that, that gave lessons. And he figured like the biggest ad because he, his, his family had a, a music store too. So he figured the size of the ad equals the success of the store. Then, then he would go and... Uh, Usually wind up paying for the lesson and giving the lesson to, to whoever was going to teach him. But he was always seeking knowledge. And then at one point, when the whole issue of recording Speak of the Devil, which, by, by the way, at one time, uh, the production of that, of that record and video was targeted to be in, in Toronto. So, you know, so that, you know, that was like, we had, they had an idea, a vision. We're going to play in Toronto and we're going to do this presentation and we're going to record all these Black Sabbath songs. Did that ever happen, Rudy? Yes and no. Yes. Yes, it did happen. The, the, the Black Sabbath songs were recorded live, just like they were meant to be before Randy passed away. Uh, later on with Brad Gillis, it's called Speak of the Devil, uh, live at the Ritz in New York. And then there is, another, that's called Speak of the Devil. Then there's, just to, just to make things easier, there's another Speak of the Devil. <laughs> that is actually the, the band, again, it was supposed to be with Randy, but Randy passed away before it, came, you know, before it happened. And uh, it's Brad Gillis and Ozzy, Tommy Aldred, Don Aria, and myself at Irvine, California, 
playing live, and that's called Speak of the Devil, and that was actually a DVD now, but it came out originally 1982 Halloween MTV. That was the, the first time it was broadcast, and it just went to a shelf, and it was shelved for decades, and it wasn't until like maybe 20 years ago that it appeared as a bootleg from Brazil. And I have a copy of it. And I got a Best Buy. So <laughs> that is, this is the one Best Buy would sell bootlegs, you know, from Brazil. And the, and then Eagle Walk, uh, we released it as, a, as an actual, you know, commercial copy. And they asked me to write the uh, the liner notes. So, so, yeah. Uh, so, yes, your answer is yes and no. <laughs> If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Mr. Rudy Sarzo, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got Glass Tigers Alan Frew, Strange Advances Drew Arnott, Chalk Circles Chris Tate, Crooner Matt Dusk, and The Boxes Jean-Marc Pisipia. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, Rudy, I don't want to take you too off track here because you got so many, uh, you had a great story going on, but I do want to ask you about your Canadian connections and in particular with uh, Sass Jordan. Sass, sister. Yeah, she's she's my, she's a sister I've never had, but now I do, but now I <laughs> okay. do. Sass is just tremendous. I mean, I'm such a big fan. I first met her uh, back in 90s, I believe in 1994. Back in 1992, we started doing these Randy Rhodes tributes in conjunction with major brands, you know, like like, like Gibson Fender or whatever. I can't really recall who was involved, but I know that they, they sponsored it. And um, uh, John Sticks from Guitar World magazine. So we had all these shows and all these great musicians played there. And there was such a buzz that Sass Jordan was, you know, was going to play, do a set, you know, and that's when I first met her. And she, and this is the 94 version. I believe Brian Tishy was playing drums, T.M. Stevens and Stevie Salas was in the band. So it was uh, early on in her career and she just blew everybody away. And then years later, fast forward, um, uh, I was doing touring with, with uh, Jeff's, Tate's version of Queensryche, because at that time, you know, it was, the name was up for grabs in the courts about who, who had the rights to it. And, um, Sass came on board to, to, to open up the tour. It was a duo, just her and Brian Tishy. And then uh, she would come on and do the, uh, the Sister Mary parts of, uh, Operation Mindcrime. And uh, we became best best friends, and I just love her. I, I mean, and and also we have we are part of this uh, charity organization that is uh, rooted. I mean, I would say Calgary, but it's really a Canadian because you know we we do a lot of uh, events around Canada. It's called Bank Benevolent Artist National Charity, and she's a major part of that. So we get to, you know, play and see each other regularly, every year at least. Plus, me being, she's the one that recommended me for, for the guests who, uh, she told Derek, yeah. Derek Sharp, her husband, hey, why don't you call Rudy? You know, when they hear the best player, and I immediately, you know, I say, yeah. 
I grew up with that music. You know, that's part of the soundtrack. And to play with Gary Peterson, you know, the man who recorded all those drum parts, that's what a treat. I, 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 I told Gary, you know, you're probably the last original member, OG, we call it, you know, original member of any, of any drummers that I will ever play with that is the one who recorded these parts. So, you know, for a bass player, we have this, this synchronicity between drums and bass, you know, and, and to play with him, it's just so magnificent. I mean, he plays a way that modern drummers don't play because they just don't have the same roots. Uh, you know, uh, I I used to have breakfast all the time, every day on on, on the road with uh, with Gary. I just pick his brain, and he says he told me, "Listen, I don't remember ever not playing drums. He had been playing drums for for that long. I think he started at three. He was a child prodigy. He started out at three, and he says." Uh, so he started playing drums before rock and roll existed. So all, all these, and he's one of the very few that still are performing, you know, from, from that era. Pre-rock and roll drumming, which means that you bring in jazz, you know, he played with, uh, with uh, jazz musicians uh, up in Calgary, and even before he joined the guest who, and I asked him, how come if you were playing with like Lenny Bro, all, the, all these guys, you know, what makes you want to play rock and roll? And he says, well, again, just like Randy, I wanted to be with my own age group because everybody else was so much older than him, you know? And uh, so that was kind of like, like like the beginning of the uh, well, whole thing with the Guess Who for him. Well, that was your connection then into the Guess Who through Sass Jordan. Yeah. I want to ask you, Rudy, about your memories of playing Toronto. I don't know if you recall Maple Leaf Gardens or CNE Grand. Yes, I do. Every time I play there. So, matter of fact, when you brought up Kiss, that's one one degree, one degree of uh, of separation between Kiss and, and Weishnake. We did that show at the CNE. Very controversial show, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't leave me hanging on that. May I ask about that? What was controversial? Or, First time I met Paul Stanley was I was working. I had just gotten to LA. This is 1978, and I was working at, at a at a health at a fast health food place. It was called McNaturals. If you so, yeah, that will give you a picture. <laughs> McNaturals, and uh, it was kind of like the place where about all the celebrities used to come down for lunch. It was right across the street from Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. So like it, right there in the middle of West Hollywood. On the strip, so one day, you know, I'm there, like my, I think it's my first day of the job. I look up, you know, I'm looking, trying to figure out the uh, the cash register. And I see somebody approaching, and I look up, and it's Paul Stanley without the makeup, of course. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and I'm going like, holy shit, because sure, you can't even see it was him, you know. And yeah. so he ordered a, a a small glass of carrot juice. And a dish that's made out of bean sprouts and tuna fish. And I thought, wow, he's going to be gassy someday. <laughs> you know, and he would come in every single, every single day and order the same thing. And before I knew it, you know, we started like talking and I gave him a record of this, uh, 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 a copy of the second Quiet Riot record, uh, Quiet Riot 2, that I did not play on. But by the time that they were doing the photo shoot, the original bass player, he was out of the picture. So, you know, you know, so here I am, you know, okay, you doing the photo session. Okay. 
And uh, so I, you know, so I've known Paul all this time. And then, you know, I became, you know, I started playing with Ozzy. And then that that brought our relationship a little back because now I'm playing with Ozzy. So now we're we're getting closer. And then the success of Choir Raya that, you know, yeah. By So we, this is 1990. And originally there was going to be two shows, a Kiss show and a White Snake show. So with the promoter, for whatever reason, he decides to take both of these arena shows and put him at the CNE, one of my favorite places to play at. But the thing was that Kiss was going to open up for White Snake. They didn't have their makeup on yet. Uh, you know, they're set, as I recall, it looked like a pyramid. Was that um, whatever tour that was? You know, not 1990. Kiss. Okay. okay. And they were going on like around six o'clock which was still daylight. And uh, so they were not happy with that. And then there was so, I had nothing to do with this because this is beyond my my supervision here. But somehow, some way, they were told not to use pyro. It's daylight. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen anybody use pyro in the daylight anyway. So, you know, but I guess they, they don't like being told no, even if it's, if it made sense, it just, no, no, no. They, I don't want to hear no. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do, what not to do. Okay. So I arrive at the show and yeah, I want to just, you know, so I go to the side of the stage and I see Paul and he looks at me, he waves and I wave back and I go, wow, the guys, the guys sound pretty good. You know, they're playing, blah, blah, blah. And then the song ends and then right before the next song, Paul goes into a rant about, about, I don't know apologizing to the fans for not delivering to the fans a proper kiss show because Whitesnake would not allow them to use the pyro. <laughs> that did not work very well. <laughs> well, when I think when I think of a kiss show, I think of pyro. So I can Plus, see how many kiss shows have you seen in, in daylight, you know, and with no makeup, you know. So it's like, okay. So... <laughs> So there was like this big uproar backstage between the White Snake camp and the and the Kiss camp, and it was just you know, it sucked, it sucked, it sucked. I, just just because you know, we should all get along, you know. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I I'm pretty sure that it it meant a lot for Paul to come out and say that, and and just let the people that really came to see Kiss know what was going on, so there would be so they would know what the source. Of the situation came from, you know, according to them, you know. Rudy, I have some Paul Stanley trivia to share with you, and that is he, in Toronto, was the lead in Phantom of the Opera. He had quite a long run here. So he's certainly talented, oh, yeah. not only rock, yeah. but... Incredible, incredible. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any memories playing Maple Leaf Gardens or any other venues in Toronto or yes. the area? What The best ping pong table backstage of any <laughs> venue I've ever played at. That is excellent. <laughs> we we I assumed you'd have some memory of watching a hockey game, but no, the best ping pong table, former Maple Leaf Gardens. By the way, Rudy, it's now a supermarket, which unfortunately that's what happens to our great buildings. They repurpose them. So the the, the ping pong is gone. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. So. And you know, I I gotta tell you, forty one years ago I was not I was not really aware about why is why am I looking at a picture of the Queen of England from the stage when I play these these venues? You got a great you memory. Know, and <laughs> I, 
we, we, you, you might find this interesting. We just had a uh, documentary put out. Harold Ballard owned the Toronto Maple Leafs and Maple Leaf Gardens, and it was seen as not a great period in Toronto sports history because the team never won. And it was always a legend, and now proven true, that at one point he removed that picture of the Queen to put in more seats so he could sell more tickets. And how did that go over? <laughs> well, he sold more tickets. They called it the, they called it the Carlton Street Cash Box. Yeah. But uh, the problem was he wouldn't spend on the team, yeah. so they never did well. Yeah, it's like, you know, the first time I played there uh, uh, was with Ozzy. And we're doing all this, you know, metal stuff. Especially 41 years ago, that was uh, pretty much as metal as you could get, you know. And here we are, like, you know, in this, like, really, in our minds, you know, uh, listening to the lyrics as we play, because that's one thing that I do, you know. It's like the, the script of the song, you know, the story. And I, and I look up at, you know, I'm playing Mr. Crowley and I look at picture of the queen sitting there, very royal and very toys that I'm going like, I'm not inspired. <laughs> you know, it's like, it puts me in a whole different mood. I want to ask you, Rudy, about when you look back at 1983 and metal health, as we mentioned, turning 40 this year, it's, it's hard to believe at that time, MTV was now on the scene. How much do you credit videos to this success, and how important was it to the success of mental health? Well, not only uh, I would say a hundred percent, and if you put that, not not just us. I mean, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson without MTV would have not been able to create all those films, movies. I mean, beautiful. That's that's art, you know. Bringing in all these, was it John Landis? We did the um, yeah, uh, correct thriller, the thriller video, and the huge budget. The budget. For that. I mean, that kind of like that. <laughs> it wasn't music videos anymore. These were work of art, you know. So it just really expanded the the whole vision of music. It just kind of reinvented music, you know. MTV did. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's. I. I. I with Ozzy, the only MTV thing that I did was, like I mentioned before, the Speak of the Devil on Irvine Live that you can get on Eagle Rock now. And then after that, Quiet Riot, we were on every half hour on the hour. Come and feel the noise. I could set my watch to it. And that, without that, or, you know, without MTV, the 80s were not happy the way they did. You know? Yeah. When suddenly you saw your fans, they were dressing like yeah. They had the vertical striped spandex yeah. and the bandanas around. And I'll, I'll, I'll also add to it, uh, there was this uh, Target, like a like a black and white shirt, had a Target on it that I got at the merry-go-round. Where else are you going to get your heavy metal clothing? You have to go to a girl right. shop, the merry-go-round, and they were on every mall. So, you know, I'm looking down. I went to every mall in, in North America <laughs> during that tour. There was nothing else to do. So so anyway, so I'm walking down the mall and there's this shirt. So I went in and I bought it. And then I started wearing it every day. So it showed up on, on the video, the Come On Feel The Noise video. I'm wearing it and so on. And before you know it, Mary Ground has an ad. But instead of using Quiet Riot, they use Slade. <laughs> in the oh, no. Come Feel The Clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you never got your residuals for that, yeah. Rudy? No, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, it just it, it was like uh, you know we started noticing like mm, we are people are paying attention. 
to quiet riot. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's the most important thing, you know, find, getting those clues, you know, to let you know you're going in the right direction. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity. All that spandex, all that clothing from that era, long gone, or do you keep a, a trunk somewhere with all the memories? <laughs> keep a trunk. I like to find that trunk <laughs> if I have one, because there's some stuff that I would like to wear again. But but no, I mean, it's, uh, hey, hey, okay, this is where it all started. All those, and I'm just going to say the Sunset Strip musicians, because I, I that's, that's where I was living, in, in Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. we, whether you were born in California or in Los Angeles, like uh, the members of Choir Ride were when I joined the band, or if you were, uh, you know, you migrated there from all over the place in all over the world. I mean, there were musicians there from England that had just moved in because all of a sudden the punk and new wave was taking over in England. So if you were a rock musician, you you know, you will go to LA to put a put a band together. So it was a whole bunch of starving musicians. And what we would do is we would hang out of the rainbow. What well, this is what I did: hang out of the rainbow and. Uh, Hopefully, some girl will take me uh, to her home and show some kindness and give me breakfast, and I will go through her closet and see if it was something that I could wear on stage that, that weekend with Choir Riot, you know. And so basically, that's how, and I wasn't the only one. This is what we all did. Every single one of them had stories like that. We were all starving musicians. That's why we were so skinny. We couldn't afford food. <laughs> It wasn't intentional. It's yeah, what happened. It's just, yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and and so the fashion, that's where it came from. Going through your girlfriend's closet, you know. And and so that carried on into the eighties. I'm talking about seventies, you know, and then it carried on yeah. like to the eighties. It was it was the same look that you had before. It was just transition. Now you're seeing now yeah. that look that you've been developing for five years is now on MTV. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, amazing how it transitioned with the power of TV. (laughs) Rudy, there's a lot of stereotypes about rock stars, but you break that. You are a rock star with a wife approaching 40 years of marriage. Impossible. How do you and Rebecca do it? And and congratulations. And I I hope you don't mind me asking about your uh, personal life. I mean, you know, know, actually, there's there's a few. Uh, You have Dee Snyder. With his wife, I think they I believe they met in high school. So you know that's that's a long time, you know. So uh, I, you know we're not the only ones, but uh, you know it just you know it takes a very special kind of woman to really understand with the dynamics of uh, of being married to a to a musician and, and and my wife. I mean, we have been together for about three years before we actually got married. So we've known each other. We've been together since 81. So that's like 42 years. And, you know, once you make a commitment, that's it. That's how I was raised. You know, there's no, you know, you're not going around looking for anything else. What you're looking for, you already have it. There it is, waiting waiting at home for you, you know. And, you know, it's just, yes, and very early on, I had to learn the balance between finding joy of being on the road and finding joy of being at home. And the way I look at it now, because we do a lot of uh, flyaways, is that it's to me, as soon as I step into the garage to start the car to go to the airport at three o'clock in the morning, it's about the trip back home. That's that's my first step to, to return, mm-hmm. you know. 
And then and in between, I find the joy of, of making music and celebrating, in my case now, the legacy of Quiet Riot and and the memory of Frankie Benali and Cabin and Kevin DeBrow and Randy Rhodes. And, and just and, and this year, it's uh, 40 years of mental health, and next year will be 40 years of condition critical. <laughs> Yeah. It's incredible. Rudy, uh, what are your plans for uh, playing live in uh, 2023? Yeah, uh, by the time we're done with this year, we'll probably have between 60 or 70 shows. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're, we're playing one of the Rama Casino coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes. And then, we're, well, actually, we got booked uh, to Newfoundland. <laughs> yes. I always wanted to go there, you know, so here I am. My lane it's what what better time that uh that to celebrate 40 years of mental health you know and so yeah we're beginning to add more shows into canada you know it's a, it's a little bit challenging uh for any musician from outside of canada to 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 perform there because you know you gotta get some permits and you gotta it's 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 just a little bit tougher going through customs and all of that you know sure so, uh, but uh but i think that there were we're we're finding a way how to do that, and and, and plus, I every year I do the uh, in Calgary, and we're expanding it also to Edmonton, and hopefully back this year Vancouver and Toronto. The uh, the bank, uh, the Benevol- benevolent artist national charity uh, performances this year. Fantastic. Well, where can anyone go when they want to know what you're up to and uh, your various performances? You are you on social media or is there a website? Yeah, like, yeah, it's just uh, Rudy Sarzo. And you know, some sometimes people write to me and they say, "There's there's an imposter out there," blah 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 blah. And I say, "Okay, it's very easy. You look at my website. How many followers do I have? Oh, about 150,000. Okay, that's me. The imposter has like five. <laughs> yeah." <laughs> it- it shouldn't be hard to yeah, get to the throat. Okay, pick one. The guy with five followers or me with 150,000. And and it's and the reason why I have 150,000 because it's always been me from day one about 15 years ago when I first, you know, got into social media. So I've been I've been adding on yeah. these followers. You know, whereas the imposter just started well, like maybe 2 days ago. <laughs> Well, you've heard it here for clarity. At Rudy Sarza is where you want to go to learn everything, to know everything about what Rudy's up to. Rudy, I want to thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure getting to know you and hearing your stories. And I want to wish you continued success. And we welcome you back to Toronto and the learn your too. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. Come on down. R- the Rama Casino. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Thanks so much, Rudy. All the best to you. And to our listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Rudy Sarzo, I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. 
do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.